You're listening to Saturday Chronicle on Scarif Bay Community Radio. You're very welcome back. Presented this morning by John S. Kelly and myself, Jim Collins. Our thanks to our sponsors, uh, James M. Nash and Co. and Derek Kitchen Design. So, um, the we're joined, John, by two guests this morning, uh, Bonnie Boyle and PJ McNamara. You're both very welcome. Yeah, thank you, thank you Jim. I suppose... And we're still in there, you know. We have pulled them out of the out, out of the ditches of East Clare, do you know? Yes. <laughs> because we heard along the way that they had been to Palestine, and uh, and I've I've met anybody uh, who has visited uh, in the turmoil or even in the pre-turmoil that is uh, Palestine now. Well, so, in the light of of what's going on in the Middle East at the moment particularly in Gaza, but wider as well. Um, we said it would be great to talk to people who have visited there. And I think, um, PJ, it was just over a year ago. Yeah, it was about 30 months ago, the end uh, of October and into the first nine or ten days of November. I think that's all right, was it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Last year, we decided to go. I've always had an interest in... Palestinians and their history and it's mirror image really I always thought of Irish history just that they seem to be just about a hundred years or so different but you know plantations uh, foreign powers controlling their lives um, imbalance of justice and bits and pieces like that so that interests me I mean it doesn't sound like a place that you somewhere like that that's you want to go on a holiday but I actually <laughs> want to go and see it and outside of the, the whole politics of it what's it like what kind of a place is it um, to go on a holiday let's say oh people go on people go on holidays they're hiking it's beautiful sure it's so historic yeah it's, go on Van, tell us about it the beauty of the place that's the history the of the book. place <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah but if you've any sort of if you've ever picked up a history book or listened to what you're being told at school or whatever these the the place townlands and places pop up that you've that are in the back of your head that you think you'd never go to you know, yeah bethlehem uh galilee nazareth and where does it all start for you pj the interest that in palestine yeah that's a good question yeah where does it start for you no, like, sorry, I it's, mean, it's fascinating to to it's a bit like stepping into a time machine maybe and seeing what Ireland because we had a fascination recently with our centenary of 1916 yeah Anglo-Irish Treaty stuff like that yeah. if you're interested in history at all it's the feel of it rather than the look of it yeah is what I would imagine Ireland was a bit like uh, over 100 years ago yeah and that's interesting to me that might yeah. sound like everyone's cup of tea but yeah. it certainly was mine well uh yeah, do, do you have a handle, Jim, on... Well, I can only imagine, I, I only see clips on TV and, and you know, it's it's quite, it looks quite barren often, but maybe that's the beauty of the thing that yeah. you're talking about. Bonnie, you've drifted into filmmaking yeah. in recent times. Tell, tell us, and, and the two are connected, obviously, because you were filming over there. Um, tell us about your interest in filmmaking. Okay. Um, well, I started into filmmaking or really thinking about it during the pandemic when I lost the job that I was 
on and had time and then ended up going back to college and spent a couple of years um, studying film production and worked on some really lovely projects. I, I worked on a film about Mount Shannon Arts Festival and I loved that and just had a few different, I guess, passion projects as well that I worked on and made... For college, I made a film about the weavers where I had been working in Tomb Graney and that was, I suppose you call it a poetic documentary, um, which was shot kind of unusually, but that ended up getting kind of a, a good reception and ended up being in festivals was in Galway Film Flat and Cork and Limerick. And, um, so that was really nice, a really nice kind of introduction that I had to filmmaking and documentary is definitely my passion and... I love, well, there's a few different elements of things that I love. One, it has to do often with creativity. And that was one of the things that had to do with the connection to Palestine. Is I, I like PJ had a draw to go there. And it was something we had talked about for years. And we had kind of played around with what, what way we could go to Palestine and do something there or have some kind of contribution. And everything was like a six-week to three-month minimum. Yeah, with organised um, groups. With organised yeah. groups. Yeah. And and then we kind of thought, so, well, actually, this just doesn't happen. And there was a real pull. We had a really, really strong pull to go there. And one of the things that was really fascinating to me was it, w is the role, and not just in Palestine, but in general, that creativity plays in sustaining, in sustaining us through challenges or through navigating our way in the world. And particularly then looking at Palestine, how creativity was part of resistance. And that was very specifically something that I wanted to explore, was, was, was this okay. idea of creativity and keeping your hands busy and the role that that played. And Bonnie, yeah. <coughs> I, I presume that in your luggage, yeah. uh, as you packed for the, the trip, yeah. that you had things in your mind that you wanted to explore. Would that be a fair observation? Absolutely. So now we opened the, we opened the, we get a sneak view of the um, uh, that little diary, and what are they finding? Um, and you haven't gone there, you haven't been there yet now for the. No, and and in fairness, that was definitely that was definitely a challenge in terms of the fact that it was just myself and PJ going to somewhere we'd never been, meeting people we'd never met before, and all of the all of the things that that involved. And then trying to think about the film. So it was a lot of things piled on top of each other. But but that, I mean, really the core of it for me was wanting to explore that concept of how are these people sustaining themselves and what are artists doing? Artists often are at the forefront of digesting and looking and being conduits for things yes. on a larger scale. So I was really interested in that. Yeah. Um, but actually really... While I was kind of, you know, at the forefront of pushing the filming side, PJ was also had his elements that he wanted to explore, and and the footage reflects that. Like PJ was looking a lot at the historical context with people, and looking a lot at. There's this um, word in Arabic, samud, which is an amazing thing. Maybe you want to talk about it, but that's definitely something that is a very strong theme in Palestine. Um, and that came up a lot in, in, in PJ's interviews that he'd ask people about Samud and talk a lot about the, the connection between Ireland and, what is and Palestine. So, 
Zamud comes up a lot, so it's one of those it's one of those words now that you've heard it. You'll probably hear it a lot, especially yeah. if you're uh, studying Palestine or Palestinian. Zamud means uh, steadfastness, so it's about standing strong or resisting and um, keeping your pride. It's, it means a lot of things. I mean, literally, it means steadfastness, but it means way more than that. Yes. It's so nationalism creeping into the uh, somewhere. N- nationalism, yeah, or pride in yourself or your culture or your little crossroads first, and then your province, and then yourself mm-hmm. as a as a citizen of what you want to be. Yeah, um, standing against mistreatment, never being silent, um, not not collaborating in in the lot that you found yourself in or born into, that you will always resist. Stand and up while someone is, if someone is mistreating you, you will let as many people listening know as possible and you will stand tall. Yes, so Sumud is a very interesting word, really. So, yeah, I, it took me a while to learn it, but then after a few days, if we were interviewing someone, Bonnie would set up an interview or we meet someone, I would generally ask them, what does Sumud mean to you? And that would they'd just mm-hmm. take off then. They could, I mean... Bonnie could be, we could be asking them about art and they would be obviously they're artists so they would talk at length and passionately about that but the other question that they would also uh, any Palestinian artist or not you'd ask them what does Samud mean to you and hmm. they would just tell you they would, they would tell you what it means tell me you and Bonnie mentioned a moment ago like I mean, the importance of talking to people and getting you know getting people's views how did you break into that did you know people there already or how did you you know, break into the local community and meet people that would talk to you? Well, actually, it, it's kind of an interesting one. It, it was a mixture of some contacts, actually, that maybe you want to talk about. Yeah, OK, so the, the first contact I had with a Palestinian, the first time I ever spoke to a Palestinian in Palestine was um, I am a, a Celtic football club fan and I found they're a lot less conservative really than than we are saying is clear so if to to be a Celtic fan a proper one you would have to support Palestine um, unquestioningly and, and loudly so I found that when I was going over there in the last few years uh, for since 2019 I found that nearly every time I met my group there was another Palestinian fundraiser you were always throwing fivers and tenors at something if you didn't you'd be thrown <laughs> off the bus and then uh, we got a I was on a WhatsApp group and one of the lads who actually hadn't met, he was saying, would you buy, buy oil off me? Because I'm buying it from my pal that I met in Beitzahur outside Bethlehem in West Bank. And he's, he was a Rish, Nidal Rishmawi. And there was no point in me buy, buying a litre of oil from a guy in Scotland. And, you know, he can get it from West Bank and then sending it from... Nidal would send it from West Bank to Scotland and then I'd buy one litre. You know, the post would be silly. So I just said, give me Nadal's number, and I'll, I texted him and said, look, I'll, I'll buy, some, buy some olive oil from you. Olive oil is also very important to the Palestinians. The olive trees is a huge symbol, as important as a thistle is to the Scots or a harp is to us. It's almost a national symbol. And really? Olive, yeah, we'll get into that in a minute. But anyways, I texted Nadal and asked, what's the minimum you could send me that I could buy a few? And it was whatever, a couple of hundred euros worth. So I sent that to him, and he sent me over the oil, and then I sold it to my friends here. And so when we went over, that was the one contest, I must meet this fella and buy more oil from him. But it turned out he's not actually an oil salesman at all. He's a, he's a tour, tour guide. 
And it's just that they uh, COVID times actually had, is what had made him fall on hard times and that he was just selling bits and pieces on the side. So we met him and then we met his brother, George, who someday I hope you interview. He's a great spokesman. And then Bonnie then set up contacts with artists. But our first friend, if you like, was, was Nadal Rishmawi and the Rishmawi family in Beitsahur. Yes. Yeah. And in terms of talking to them, I'm right in thinking it was in English. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, their English is all quite good, the Rishmawi family. Not, not, not everyone has good English in Palestine, but in fairness, it would be a lot, a lot better than my Arabic. Yes. You know, I really have very little Arabic. And it's also... Um, very noticeable that everybody wants to talk about the Palestinian story. It's not like you're looking for someone to interview. If you say that you're, you know, we're looking for people, everyone will put themselves forward because it, it, it's such a, it's just what they're carrying. They want to tell their story. And one of the, there's a few themes that came up, but one of them definitely that came up last year, which of course has changed now, is that they felt forgotten by the world that no one was remembering them. And so that's even part of it, that you're there wanting to listen to them was so meaningful to them. And I think yeah. one of the things that I was quite humbled by and, and really surprised by was how, I think even people, so, so Pete, when, if PJ was wearing a Celtic jersey and somehow was recognisable that we were Irish, they, people would actually approach us and maybe with tears in their eyes, thank you for the solidarity from Ireland. And to me, I was shocked by that because I thought, okay, there's, okay, there is a bit of solidarity, but it's not like it's this overwhelming thing in the country. I know we are seeing it now, but that little bit that was coming from Ireland, and even politically, because there were politicians that were talking about it, that was a lifeline to them, mm -hmm. that little bit. And so just being there and wanting to listen to them was such a huge thing for them. And that, that was, that's really quite something to realise how meaningful those actions are to people that want to be heard and, that, and and in a way that it made filming very easy in one sense because everyone wanted to share their story yeah, yeah. how much w would they be aware mm. of in terms of the Irish experience would, um, that, would that ever ever manifest Mass uh, absolutely massively. massively really yeah yeah that's a bit of a yeah. surprise Jim, it is, yeah, yeah. Huh? they're very very yeah. interested mm. in um, the parallels. So I was interested in the, in the parallels from them. They were. They would call. I remember a taxi driver calling. Was it a taxi driver that said, uh, oh, "Ireland is our big sister." Yeah. That's so they've gone through the exact same life that we went through. Yeah. Yeah. Very aware, and even going back a hundred years when a peace treaty, Anglo-Irish peace treaty, was signed in nineteen twenty. Mm. Um, yeah. The end that, of twenty one. Twenty one was it? Yeah. Okay. Uh, after the the auxiliaries and the black and tans were out of the job, yes, and they a lot of them were redeployed to Palestine, and the, I was reading Palestinian articles and Palestinian newspapers at the time were telling the populace these people who have wreaked havoc in Ireland are coming here now to do the exact same thing. This is, I mean, this is something totally new now to me. I thought you'd have been well aware that black and tans and auxiliaries were sent over to Palestine to do the job that they did here, the very but, same but job. The, the follow-up. Wreak havoc. Yeah. Yeah. And is there evidence that there was a oh, bit yeah. of that? Oh, yeah. Yes. Hav havoc was wreaked. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Because Ireland would have been looked at by countries like India, for example, mm -hmm. as being as well, yeah, one yeah. of the first countries that broke away from the kind of umbrella of the British Empire. Mm -hmm. 
So it's well, a, the Americans obviously did. You know, they yeah. they they had their own. They had their breakaway in seventeen seventies, wasn't it? Seventeen seventy five. Seventeen seventy five. Okay, so yeah. whatever it was. Or seventy six, maybe. So it had been done. Yes. But uh, yeah, so so there, there, those parallels are very interesting to me. The notion mm-hmm. that you would have had the very people who stood in possibly even East Clare. Uh, yeah. Or who would have um, arrested the Scarif Martyrs, stuff like that. They could, yes. they, some of them would have been over in Palestine doing the same thing. Yeah. You know, without any accountability. Mm. You know, that, that's the colonial experience. Know. You know, it's a dirty business, empires. And in, in your um, visit there, yeah. and in the days that you were there, uh, were you able to observe for yourself? Uh, the Palestinian story, evidence of oppression, and things that you know where where they they could, you know the 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 reason why they were hurting. Yeah, I mean there's there's a lot of I mean some of it is 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 so overt. I mean that the wall is this towering what is it eighty nine eighteen meters? It's a huge wall that's you know it's there all the time. It is in Jerusalem. Um, no, in so in Bethlehem. Yes. So Jerusalem mm. is is on the other side of the wall in, um, in what you'd call Israel. Mm. So, yes. but yeah, when we are in Bethlehem, I mean the wall is present all the time. No, you, you and, and driving up to the country, you're seeing it, and 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 the country is dissected by it as well. You know, so because it uh, and even it, it it's adapted as settlers are expanding. You know, there's this one. Um, very notable place that was uh, shown to us twice by taxi drivers where you come around and there's this hilltop and they said, you know, five years ago that hilltop was empty and now there are 20,000 settlers living in that spot. So every time the settlers are expanding, they move a wall or or make sure that they're, you know, and and even when you see the quality of land on on the other side, you might see gardens and certain types of living yeah, on the yeah. on the other side of the wall and then you see you know people struggling for water that's mm. such a simple thing you know the, the water is is a huge issue there like the palestinians yes. are, their roofs their rooftops are covered in water tanks because they get what do they get is it every 20 days they get water like they get they get 20 percent of what the settlers get they get 80 percent of the water you know, and 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 actually, one of the physical things that somehow I hadn't fully gotten—you're talking about some of the most populated places in the world yes, right there—and yes. that was what was incredible. It's so busy. It's so full of people. It's it's really, yeah. It, and and I just—you wouldn't rent a car and drive around. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah maybe like not. Cars. I'm, 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 I'm thinking about um, uh, the process of radicalization, yeah, which goes on. In all wars, it happened here. Uh, absolutely, mm-hmm. and people engage in in behaviours which are, as we said initially, dehumanising uh, experiences. Mm-hmm. What would have been the dominant, as you see it, looking at, or what would have come across to you, have been the dominant radicalisation events that would have led to some degree of unity of purpose. Uh, in Israel itself, I suppose a lot of people like to go back to which is it is a good starting point. Uh, Nineteen forty-eight, yeah. which is what the Palestinians called their Al Nakba or Nakba. So Nakba is the Arabic term for catastrophe. So essentially, that 
where Israel stands now, there yeah. was a uh, have uh, the IDF was first formed, the Israeli Army. So Israel was declared as they declared themselves a state in May 1948, I think it was, mm-hmm. and around that time they um, fought. They fought with uh, essentially a war or a siege with the Palestinian people living there and, and displaced oh, slightly over seven hundred thousand of them, and murdered over eleven thousand or twelve thousand, and then destroyed a lot of villages and then just declared this is now Israel. And that those people, those seven hundred thousand, they're the refugees in the refugee camps in Gaza and West Bank today. So that's if you wanted to start at where radicalization come, uh, and a good example, a sad but good example of radicalization, nineteen forty-eight is probably a good starting point. But I didn't know what crosses my mind, and I see you as a young student yourself, and Bonnie and Jim as well. Yeah, it's okay. F- it's funny turn of tables that I'm telling you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this has never happened to me before. Um, I'm thinking of. But of course, Middle East wasn't really on the curriculum, John. Sure. How could it kind be? of our own yeah. stuff was yeah, not yeah, the curriculum. Handling confront. But um, the European, uh, what I would call the European conscience in relation to uh, the uh, granting, the, the Western Allies, we'll say, facilitating the creation of the, the, the new state of Israel. Mm-hmm. Now, Somewhere in there, for me anyway, is uh, that that word uh, guilt. Do mm-hmm. you know? Well, it's even worse than guilt. Uh, the Jews suffered horrific racisms. Yes. And you don't even need to be much of a history buff to know that. But even before, well before, say the Holocaust. Yeah. In the late nineteenth um, century. The notion, the notion that Jewish people wanted somewhere to be, they wanted a country of their own because they were so badly treated, especially in Europe. So, uh, really, there is an Israel today because of a, a European anti-Semitism. Yes. So this word anti-Semitism comes out. Essentially, it's just a racism against Jewish people. Yeah. The Jewish people felt they wanted a, a place of their own uh, because they were never going to be treated well or equally. And we were willing to give, to give them that. Yeah, and there, there was enough. Yeah, there was enough. Yeah, there's a guilt there, especially after the Holocaust. I would have thought, but maybe guilt, guilt maybe comes into it after the Second World War more but, so than but before. But here, here we are. We're back to school again, and we're doing Julius Caesar. No, the Merchant of Merchant of Venice. Of Venice. Of Venice. Yes. Of Venice. Mm. <laughs> what do you say? What do you decide is the Merchant of Venice? Mm. It's applicable, if you like. But we're talking about 16th century, where the greatest playwright, I suppose, in the English language, uh, has taken up the theme of anti anti Semitism. Unfortunately, you probably didn't hear that uh, explored, but you should have been uh, exposed to that in the 16th century mm-hmm. because it didn't start as I see it. It did this anti Semitism uh, didn't start in the 16th century with Shakespeare. It was going on for hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. So Mickey Joe up in the mountain is, is, is concerned about, uh, yeah, well, how, uh, how, how, what's it all about, mm. do you know? Well, ultimately, it's about hatred, I suppose. Someone, or, or someone being racist or hateful to someone else. 
yeah. essentially where this is born from. But any war is, isn't it? As you were saying earlier. Yeah, and there doesn't have to be a, a valid reason or a or even a coherent reason mm. why somebody would be anti-Semite. Mm. They might be anti-Semite because their parents were anti-Semite, mm. indeed, or they have some vision of Jewish people mm. as yeah. undesirables mm. or whatever. Um, but that's that's what you're talking about. And it's often said by 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 anyone that wants to help in this situation, hating on someone is, is a massive waste of energy, number one, but also part of the problem. So if for some reason you're watching the news or and you're 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 despising Israelis, you really have missed the point. You know most is a lot of Israelis that we met they were so lovely. They were very nice people. Yeah. So many of them. Uh, we, we spent most of our t- vast majority of our time when we travelled in Palestine itself, so we didn't really go looking to interview or talk to many Israelis. But the ones we met, they were, there were so many lovely ones, and they're not. They're you know, Israeli isn't really part of the problem. A Zionist, maybe you could argue yeah. that one. That would be part of a problem, all right. That unity are, are are apparent to us. Apparent unity of purpose, which is coming out of Israel. Do you know? Uh, inclined to. To think that that that's a bit of a facade, because surely to God, there isn't a hundred percent support within Israel for what's going on. Nothing like it, is there? No, no. Oh, do you not. think, Bonnie? You were nodding your head there. No, there definitely, there definitely isn't. There definitely isn't the unity, um, and I th- I think that that's that's problematic, definitely for them, and it, and it yeah. makes it. And even I think one of the things. That's been difficult for maybe Israelis who were very left-leaning and were against the occupation mm-hmm. have actually been pushed. Like, they feel like they've gone backwards. You know, that all of a sudden they feel like they're, they're, they're in some way, in some way they've been pushed more towards unity. Um, but they're definitely feeling fractured and feeling... Well, certainly the ones that we have talked to, that I have talked to directly over the last few months, have found that there's very little space for how nuanced a response they're having, that they don't identify at all with, with Netanyahu or any of yeah. of his ideology. And yet they definitely don't feel this outpouring of warmth towards Palestinians either. Yeah. Um, and that that's really difficult, and like, and and actually, they're just struggling to see a future at all. I mm. think, and you know, maybe some, you know, some one in particular that we had talked to, Avia, had had been involved in, you know, um, community activities looking towards peace and the future, whereas now that seems to have gone out of sight. Mm. You know, so I think that sort of disharmony or, or difficult things has has been a real struggle for Israelis. Do you see any yeah. justification at all for uh, any of the behaviour of the Israeli defence forces? I'm thinking uh, as you. I mean, uh, like, I don't think. I think justification is is a very diff. That's a difficult word. I think that I would I would always be looking for an understanding, and okay. I think in terms of what you've touched on in terms of centuries of anti-Semitic themes going through Europe or the world, I think that's very relevant in terms of us having an understanding of that. Because like, this this is the culmination now of centuries of activity and then I suppose the, you know, the Holocaust being the real eye of that particular, um, of that action of anti-Semitism 
And that's relevant, but justification, that's a completely different thing. Mm. Um, and that's why I, I was, I don't know, were you here when I was saying to Jim that there's a, a film that I'm working on at the moment, which is actually meeting roughly once a week with PJ and a local Israeli. And that's part of the aim is to, for myself, to expand that understanding of the Israeli story because that's relevant. Mm -hmm. That's relevant to us, to, 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 for all of us to understand that more deeply. Have we a responsibility uh, as uh, a citizen of the world in a in belonging to a, dem a democracy? Have we a responsibility uh, to, in some way, so for me, I feel a responsibility. Do you? I definitely feel a responsibility for that understanding because mm. I think one of the things that I was responding to when I, when I kind of reached out to make the film was that I, I could identify in myself almost, and a satisfaction isn't quite the right word, but there's so, there was something great about having a group of people to dislike. Oh, God, that, that, it was awful what they were doing and you could just That's almost want to have like a hatred and I just caught myself and said, no, this, that's not a... I actually don't want to have that. And that's not helpful. And that's that has not got to be got, got rid of within oneself. And that's, what I, so, yeah. and that's why I thought, I need to expand my understanding. I yeah. need to broaden it because that's the only way that, I, that, that, that of building a vision of what a future might have is to deepen my understanding for that. And so that's uh, what I've done. Does it appear that, uh, from what you say, does it appear that uh, we, we are in the Western world we are move, we've moved on from the nationalism which dominated our, you know, much of our political thinking in latter decades, okay? And that uh, somehow or another, Italy is caught, or um, Israel is caught in a time warp. It is, you know, experiencing uh, emotions which the Irish would readily understand on reflection Okay. We sometimes hear that Western Europe uh, is out of touch with the realities of other parts of the world which will come into their own one way or another. The United Nations would have been an opportunity to move, you know, uh, forward towards um, uh, expanding the democratic presence. Okay. Yeah. But somehow or another. I'm just wondering as well, you know, over the last couple of years, we have, as one, well, not quite as one, but almost as one, condemned Putin and the Russian army for what they have been doing in Ukraine. And yet, the world, you know, Palestinians might see that the Western world, and particularly the United States, uh, is giving full backing to Netanyahu for doing the very same thing as as Putin is doing, basically, yeah. um, except killing a lot more people, maybe. Would you agree with that? Oh, I couldn't disagree. Yeah. Classic radio answer. Yeah, yeah, it's very interesting how the world did see the Russian invasion of Ukraine and outrightly condemned it. World leaders... And then something so, so similar was happening in Gaza, just people being slaughtered and world leaders saying nothing or, or the ones that had, did the most, had something to support. say. Giving support to Israel, yeah. 
yeah, or, or, wa- or watered down, you know, and, and, I, and I think actually, what, and I'm sure that you read it, like Tomas McNamara's article in the Clare Champion was great, you know, that he went through how powerful words are and how, you know, the responses to Ukraine were so definite and so decisive mm. and responses to this conflict have not been that at all or the opposite. Yeah. By the way, your man up in, in the hills of East Clare is scratching his or her head at the moment. Would you, would you ask them to spell out who the heck are the Palestinians? Because they're mentioned as if they're one body. Do you know? Mm-hmm. As if they're... The Palestinians are the pe- people who live uh, in the... Middle East that hugs the Mediterranean. Uh, to the north of them is Lebanon and Syria. To the east is Jordan, and to the south is Egypt. And there is about four and a half million of them. They live in Israel. They're often often called Israeli Arabs, for example. They be sort of Palestinians who just live there and work there. And they live in the West Bank. West Bank is about the size of Mayo. And Gaza is a strip uh, hugging the Egyptian border along the coast. It's probably well known at this stage that it's about 26 miles long and five miles wide with 2.2 million living in it. Most of them now displaced, the ones that haven't been slaughtered. Mm. And West Bank um, hugs Jerusalem which is sort of a contested area as to who actually, Bonnie said earlier, it was yes. part of Israel. The Palestinians wouldn't, wouldn't allow you to say that. They feel Jerusalem is theirs and the Israelis, the Palestinians feel it's theirs and so do the Israelis. They feel that Jerusalem is their own. So it's a highly contested area, Jerusalem. There's a lot of settlers living around. Settler is a, is a Israeli uh, living in the West Bank yes. area. Bonnie talked about earlier, people living on hilltops in sort of compounds. Uh, there's about 650,000 of those or more, which is a lot. 220,000 of those live in East Jerusalem. Um, and there's about a population, I think it's about 2.7 million uh, Palestinians also live in West Bank. So that's a Palestinian for you. So some, some of them live in refugee camps. So they, they f- the refugee camp people don't feel they're from where the refugee camp is. They feel they're from wherever their forefathers were displaced from, mm. usually a father or a grandfather. And that's why the symbol of a key, if ever you look up Palestine, you see keys everywhere, old, uh, old uh, what do you call them, keys, the, the old-fashioned ones. Locks. Yeah, yeah, yeah the old lock keys. So when pa- displaced, a lot of displaced Palestinians were <coughs> just locked their doors because they were escaping um, a rampaging Israeli yeah. army at, that w- turned out to be called the Nakba. And they would have left their homes in what is now Israel and fled. And the notion was that they would return in a week or a couple of weeks when the madness was over. But they've never returned, so they've stayed in refugee camps. And uh, we spent time in Dehesha refugee camp. So we stayed there for a couple of days. Yeah. Yeah. You're right, Bon. No. So we just, I suppose... Just a rambling That's not actually very coherent. No, no, but it's very interesting. As we come to the end of the interview... um, can I ask Bonnie the the films? When will we get uh, an opportunity to view uh, the films? The red the, carpet. Yes, because <laughs> we want to be there on the red carpet. Oh, we John. do. <laughs> You'll be there. Um, I would love to have a definite answer for you, and I would love if the film 
the first of the films is completed within the next month. It's definitely at the final stages. And there's just a little bit of narration that is to come from Palestine. And I am waiting on that. And... Yeah, when that comes through, then it should hopefully it'll all okay. come together quite yeah. quickly. So I, so within the next few months, it'll it'll depend on things a little bit, but mm. hopefully, like you say, that there'll be something maybe local that we would do, show the film locally. But I'll certainly let you know. Yeah, and yeah. Yeah. you'll be welcome in here to talk about it. Lovely, thank you. Friend. And PJ, have you planned to go back to Palestine again? Yeah. Yeah, we from the minute we left, we were talking about going back. Even actually, just before we left, we were talking about how we're going to get back here. I wanted to bring my my children over there to see it, and just to rub shoulders with just some lovely people. Uh, very humbling to be there to make friendships out there and to see see their sumud, see their steadfastness, and you couldn't you couldn't help but just admire them. Yeah. Yeah, Jim. Just as we, as you say, as we finish up, um, the amount of money which Western countries are making out of war, and in particular the current one, okay, is something which the West, has, as I see it, has an obligation to address. This, the amount of cash that's blown up in the in the sky, pardon the environment. Don't worry about the environmental factor. That's not important when you compare it to the, the human cost. So we have this shocking situation where on the one hand in the West we speak the language of democracy. And on the other hand, okay, we continue to profit hugely from the sale of arms making the major power powers of the world find to find it difficult to uh, come down on the side of peace. Peace is a loss of income. Do you, how do you react to that? Yeah. Would, would you say Mickey Joe up in the... Well, Mickey Joe knows well, because, you know, Mickey Joe's not a fool, so he knows that, that there is a lot of money to be made out of war. It's yeah. really always been the case, isn't it? Always. And yeah. certainly there's, there is someone, some horrible individuals making a lot of money yeah. out of slaughter. Yeah, for yeah. sure. But that's always been the case, John, isn't it? But also... The, well, speaking it, of making it, profits, it, I wanted to mention Asmahan. <laughs> I, I just completely go off on the side here, but um, one of the families we met in the Haitian refugee camp, um, she, the one of the sub, the main, the sole earner really is the Bananti Asmahan, and Asmahan makes um, like many Palestinian uh, women make uh, embroidery pieces. So she was making wallets and bags and things takes a lot of time. So we asked her, would she make us just um, embroidery pieces? Embroidery is a massive, another big part of Palestinian sumud. So they would be part of their tradition to make. Um, Embroidery. embroidery pieces mm -hmm. and especially when the Israeli authorities banned uh, Palestinian colors the red black white and green together mm -hmm. they would have they would have changed the tradition of it being mostly red to putting in the Palestinian colors it was part of their little some of their resistance and we took the pieces from her and we framed them and we sell them mm -hmm. and all the profits just get sent to Asmahan directly so I mean Asmahan wouldn't really be touched too much by 
the big uh, charities. Uh, this is just something personal to yeah. to us and to her, and she she's most grateful. So some people have bought um, embroidery pieces from me, and I'll continue to sell them until the last man refuses to send them anymore, which I yeah. can't see happening anytime soon. So if anyone uh, is uh, would like a piece of Palestinian embroidery in their home, come to me or Bonnie, and we'll show you what we got. Okay. Okay. Just an, I know that's yes. an aside to that, but it's a lovely segue there, John. Yes. Double profiteering yeah. from yeah. war. Yeah. Okay. We leave it at that. Um, we'd love to have you back again, particularly the film. And if you're, you know, going again, we'd we'd love to be maybe part of it and hear reports and various things. Could we carry the it. carry the can or the case? Oh, <laughs> we'd send live broadcast from yeah. Palestine, Ramallah. Yeah. Yeah, from yeah, Ramallah, yeah, yeah, that's right. Okay, uh, Pidge McNamara, Bonnie Boyle, many thanks for joining us today and thanks, we look yeah. forward to talking to you again. Lovely. Pleasure. Yeah.